Bible, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open, uh, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that, he has, that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. You may be seated. When was the last time you sat down and actually wrote a letter? You got a pen and paper, wrote a letter out, wrote a greeting, uh, wrote, wrote, a, wrote a conclusion, maybe a little PS, folded it up, put it in an envelope, and sent it on its way. Um, I honestly, I, get, I probably have only done this dozen times in my entire life. Now, just as I was, um, just as I was growing up, email and instant messaging was catching on. Now, I didn't have a cell phone until well into high school, but, you know, we could, I had you know, instant messaging on the computer, email long before that. I, if I wanted to get in touch with my friends, I would call them, I would, you know, message them. Writing a letter, waiting days for us, but weeks, if not months, in Paul's time for that letter to arrive and be read is an experience that few of us really understand or know. The one time, the one true experience of this that I have is when I was in college, I took a study abroad program for a semester. I was out in Papua, Indonesia. It took 90 hours of travel to get to where we were in a very remote part of the country, um, studying with missionaries there. And it was an incredible experience. It was great to be out there. 
it was impossible, impossible to communicate via mail with the outside world. And we did not have an internet connection at this place. And so, this, I wrote maybe a few letters at that time, and for the first two, maybe two and a half months that I was in this remote place without, you know, separated from everyone I've known, I did not receive a single letter. A single letter. And I was just so confused and, and frustrated. Why are my parents not sending me letters? My sister, my, my friends from college, like, what, what is happening? And then finally, a letter comes through, and it's from my aunt, who I know and love, but I'm sort of surprised. It's very short. It's just a greeting. It's almost like a greeting card. And I was baffled by this. I was so grateful for it, but so confused. Eventually, we come to find out that many, many letters had been sent to me. And I think at the end of, it, at the, end of the semester, I had received maybe four or five out of the dozens of letters that had been sent. And that experience, when I read this letter, and verse after verse of Paul naming and greeting and encouraging these various people, in my typical Bible study, you know, I might be tempted to skim the last part of this chapter, get on to the next book, because who are these people and, you know, what are they doing? But what I want us to think about this morning is how these people, some of whom we might recognize, Luke, from Luke, the author of Acts, as mentioned, but most of whom we, we know nothing about, we never heard about again, how important they are and how deep Paul's love for them was, how they were a comfort to him, how they encouraged him, and to be reminded that Paul himself is writing this letter to a church that, that he doesn't know, that, that he has not visited, and yet one that he loves, that he has gracious pastoral advice for, because that is also who we are, a church thousands of years removed from him, and yet by God's grace and the inspiration of his spirit, a church that can receive this letter be blessed, encouraged, convicted by it. So that's my prayer for us this morning as we look at this letter that we would receive it as our own and that we would know that we are loved and that we would be inspired to love one another in the same way. Let me pray for us. God, we're grateful. Grateful for this preservation of history, but Lord, also for the expression of gospel love that it is. Lord, we ask that as we reflect on it and think about it this morning, you would use it to change, encourage, convict, to transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus, by whom everything was made for him and for his glory. As Paul encourages us, Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen. The big theme throughout this letter, because this is, this is the, the, the final passage of this, has been this desire. This desire that, that Paul expresses that the people of, Col of the Colossian church would be mature in their faith, that they would know the truth of the gospel 
that they would grow in it. As it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so that is exactly how Paul begins this this part of the letter. In verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That, that is our, our key verse. That is what Paul most desires. That is how Christians will grow in maturity. That is how they will stand mature, fully assured in the will of God, by continuing in steadfast prayer, watchfully and with thanksgiving. And so, I just want you to, to, to think about what steadfast prayer means and looks like. In your own life, what is your practice of it? We've, we've preached about prayer many times. We've preached about it within this series. Um, earlier in January, when we were, we were encouraging you to fast and pray, we shared uh, pre-written prayers on, on themes and topics. Uh, throughout your Christian life, you may have been given a book or a devotional or encouraged in a, in a method of prayer. Um, perhaps you've, you've been blessed by one of those and, and you continue in it. Or perhaps the concept of steadfast prayer, consistent, continual prayer, is something that intimidates you and that you've always found to be a struggle. I certainly have. I found that as Paul warns us in chapter 2, creating a rigorous set of rules and restrictions for yourself is often a vain and unhelpful thing to do. When I think of steadfast prayer, I think of, I, the, the thing that I think of first is just disciplined consistency, sort of rigorous prayer that, ta- prayer that goes on for a long time, prayer that covers every, every issue or need, um, prayer that is, to, for lack of a better word, perfect. And that's foolish of me. I want to take a look at how Jesus taught us to pray and what he taught us about it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus encourages us to pray simply and to pray in a specific way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What stands out to me and and is true of me is is verse 7. They think they will be heard because of their many words. For myself, I I don't imagine that the amount of words that I use are going to cause God to hear me or respond to me. But in a similar way, the the quality of my words, the eloquence, the honesty, the... um, the amount of scripture that I can weave in. The, there's a, there is an ideal of prayer that I have created that is not found here in Jesus' advice, but it's, it's one that I aspire to, and aspiring to it 
actually hinders my ability to pray. It makes my prayer not steadfast. It makes it infrequent and unsatisfying. The phrase, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, that is my constant struggle. Perhaps yours is similar, perhaps yours maybe you struggle in a different way to pray consistently um, or to pray powerfully. Maybe you, you, pray, you pray on a regular, ba- regular basis, but you don't feel that your heart is in it. You pray consistently, but you don't feel that God is responding or that he is distant. Paul encourages us in this way from Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God, that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. When we pray to this Jesus, our emotions, fickle as they may be, cannot be relied on. But Paul's assurance to us is that he can. And so when Paul prays for the Colossians, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that is, that's, that's the starting point for him. So that with that knowledge, that would then translate into walking in a manner worthy of God, bearing fruit in good work, continuing to increase in knowledge, then being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. That's what Paul prays for the Colossians. And so, whether it's our lack of emotional connection, our aspiring to something that is not good for us, that we have idealized, what we, what we truly need is the simple and consistent expectation that God is the one who acts in prayer, that he is the one who acts in prayer, so that our prayers and the, their effectiveness and their value is not dependent on us, our, our eloquence of words, our emotional connection, or our, um, our, yes, our, our eloquence of, of words, any of those things. What we need instead is that knowledge, not all-encompassing, knowing the answer to every question, being able to articulate theology in a profound way. The simple knowledge that all things hold together in him and that he is the one who acts in prayer. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, including us. So we were created by him and for him. And when we pray, no matter, our, no matter what is behind that, no matter what, um, what faults there are in it, he is the one who hears and responds. Paul encouraged us to be steadfast, to be watchful, and to do it with thanksgiving. One of the things that I've been trying all the more to do is to include 
thanksgiving in all of my prayers, no matter what I'm praying for, no matter when I'm praying. This, this morning as we just prayed for our, our worship service, I thank God for his presence. I thank God for what we expect and hope for him to do when his people gather together to worship. When we, um, as we've been trying to impart our, our faith and, and our habits of prayer to our daughter, Lizzie, who, who is here this morning, <laughs> probably isn't listening, um, we've, we ask her, Lizzie, what do we say when we pray? And she says, thank you, God. And on the one hand, I, 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 want to, I want her to know more than that, um, and I have to be patient with her as a, as a three-year-old child. But on the other hand, thanksgiving in prayer is one of the hallmarks of prayer. It is one of the things that makes prayer what it is, that we have someone to thank, both for what we have and for what we will have. Thanksgiving, whether, whether our emotions are causing us to be thankful or not, is a discipline. It's a discipline that requires steadfastness and consistency. So we always give thanks regardless of what situation or emotions we are in. That is, what Paul, that is exactly what Paul is doing as he concludes his letter reminding us, remember my chains. Paul is thankful in the midst of his imprisonment, um, and, and as he explains, he has a lot to be thankful for. One of the, if, you, if you do benefit um, from, from books you find, if maybe you, some of you probably read too many books on prayer. Um, I certainly have, but uh, I recently read yet another. It's called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, by Pete Grieg. And this is what he says about the importance of prayer, and, we, and, and specifically in the letters of Paul. We observe equal prayerfulness in Peter's apostolic counterpart, Paul, of whom it is said immediately after his conversion on the road to Damascus, he is praying. Paul's epistles bubble and fizz with petition with spontaneous doxologies and passionate exhortations to pray. We are engaged, he reminds the Ephesians, in active warfare against dark spiritual powers. We are caught up, he tells the Romans, in an intense heavenly prayer meeting. We are edified, he tells the Corinthians, in truths revealed to us only through prayer. Prayer is more than a lighted candle, insists the theologian George it is the contagion of health. It is the pulse of life. A real relationship with God means walking with him daily. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it means talking with him intimately, like Moses, with whom the Lord would speak face to face as one speaks to a friend. And it means listening attentively to his voice, because as Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. The value, the importance of prayer cannot be overstated. And everything that Paul desires, the maturity, the walking in a manner that is worthy, uh, that is worthy of holiness, the bearing of spiritual fruit, all of these things must come from a life dedicated 
to prayer that is steadfast. Again, though, those, those kinds of encouragements, I read them, and they encourage me, and then I spiral out into creating lofty goals for myself that I will not, that I will not live up to. This morning, we're in our uh, class on Ecclesiastes, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in which the teacher warns his reader to guard their steps when they go into the house of God. He says, because there are people in the house of God offering foolish sacrifices and doing so without realizing that they are acting evilly. He goes on to say, similarly to as Jesus did, that many words and, and dreams and busyness are ultimately empty and even evil. He warns his reader very, very uh, abruptly and, and directly, as is the style of Ecclesiastes, that there is a way to worship and pray that is actually evil and counterintuitive, and that the simplicity of worship, the simplicity of prayer, is not only adequate, but is what God desires and what God blesses. And so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, as he continued in Matthew chapter 6, he taught them the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. It took me a, a, less than a minute to recite that prayer to you. The prayer is, is beautiful, indeed, but it couldn't be simpler. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't put on airs or pretend that there is immense uh, emotion behind the thanksgiving or the confession, though there may be when you, when you recite it or when you pray. Such emotion is not required. It does not assume a, a great knowledge or depth of theological insight. It simply, it simply offers a child speaking to their father. That is, the, that is the level at which our theology needs to be to pray, to simply know that God is our Father who loves us and that he hears when we pray. And that's, that's what Jesus encourages us with. Look, your Father knows what you need before you ask, so do not, do not worry. Do not go on. Do not think that your many words are necessary. And so we live in that tension between needing to pray because it is the lifeblood of of our lives, that it key, of our spiritual life, that it needs to be steadfast, that it is the, the source and the key to everything else that we're encouraged to be, and yet at the same time, that it is a simple, simple, and ultimately can be an easy thing that is hindered by our sin and by our aspirations to false holiness. And so my encouragement to you, whatever your struggle with prayer may be, 
is to pray simply and to simply pray. At the same time, pray also for us. That God may open us to us a door to the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul is vulnerable in this letter, um, again, to people whom he does not have a personal relationship. He asks them to pray for him. Later on, he, he talks about members of his, of his group that are an encouragement to him despite his, uh, the trials that he has faced. I, then, would, would be remiss if I didn't ask you to pray for me, to pray for, for Jamie, uh, for we as, as your pastors who seek to declare the mystery of Christ to you, uh, that we would make it clear, uh, both in how we speak, but more than simply when we preach, um, when we interact, when we converse with you, meet with you, and pray for you, that we would do so in a way that makes the gospel clear. If you're going to pray for your pastors, and you're going to pray simply, that's the prayer that, I, that Paul asks for. That's the prayer that, that then I and Jamie would ask for, that you would pray for us, and that, we, that you would pray that we would be able to declare the mystery of Christ, and that we would be able to make it clear. Pray that we would be encouraged. Pray that we would know the love of Christ, that that would inspire and fuel us as we seek to love and to care for you, a task that we are only able to do because of Christ's grace and power. Pray for me. Pray for Jamie. Pray also for one another. Pray as Paul did that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. That we would be strengthened with his power and that we would endure with patience and joy. That we would give thanks to God. Paul's prayer for, for the Colossians in chapter 1 is an incredible model of prayer for a fellow believer. A fellow believer whom, for whom you might not know very many things about. As I pray for the people of our church, sometimes I know what's going on in a person's life and I'm able to pray very specifically for that thing, but sometimes I, I don't know what's going on or I know that a situation is resolved and I'm unsure of what they need. This is one of the passages that I return to when I don't know what to say because this is always a worthy prayer for anyone who knows Christ. If you're seeking to pray for your brothers and sisters and you're seeking to do so simply, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 are a way to do this, to do it well. Paul continues, moves on from prayer to encourage the Colossians to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, to make the best use of the time. He says, to let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, God has, God has assured us that if anyone lacks wisdom, we need only ask for it. We cannot accomplish what Paul desires in verses 5 and 6 without a foundation of prayer. So what Paul is, what Paul is seeking for here 
is a continuation of what we talked about last week and how he's encouraged the Christians to live in a certain way within their households and within their, within their society, that we should walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Yes, we should walk in love towards them, but here he encourages wisdom, meaning that we listen with graciousness, that we know the desires, the motivations, um, and the habits and expectations of the people outside of our church, the people in our society and in our culture. We live in a very diverse country, but the Colossians as well, the Greek-Roman Greek society, lives in a diverse place as well. It is no easier or, or harder for us than it was for them. Our task is significant. It requires us to be patient, gracious. And if we practice that, we season our speech with salt, which means the truth, then we will know how to answer each person. There's a, there's a balance in this. When you're talking to someone outside of the church, when you're trying to share the gospel with them, you're trying to engage with them on something that you know that they see differently because of their lack of faith and because of your connection to the gospel. I, uh, this, this analogy might be somewhat crude. I think of it as, I think of it in terms of playing poker. If you ever played poker, you know, there's a, there's a round of betting. People just try to determine whether their cards are good or not. They place bets on that. And if you're playing with someone who doesn't really know how to play, they will consistently go all in, make the biggest bet they can, whether it's a good thing to do or not. And they're going to win some hands that way. But at the end of the day, you're not going to want to play with that person anymore. It is not the way the game is supposed to be played. It's not a fun way to play the game. And, and ultimately, that person, despite the, the winning a couple hands, will almost certainly lose and look foolish in the process. Being gracious and having your speech seasoned with salt might look like betting appropriately in a game of poker and not going all in every single time you're, you're talking to someone outside of the church. Going straight for the most, you know, what is the biggest difference between this person and me? I'm going to get right to that. It's tempting to, to think that way. There is an urgency in our need to share the gospel with others. And yet, there's a need for graciousness and wisdom. Something we need to pray for. Something that God will bless us with. It takes prayer, practice, and patience. Finally, Paul has a long list of people. People who he greets and who he thanks. I want to focus in, we've mentioned Epaphras a couple times, his desire for the church, but I want to focus in on a, a couple people here, right in verse 10. Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, who is called Justice. Paul says that these are the only men of the circumcision, that is, Jewish men, who have, become, who have now joined the way of Jesus, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. The context of this is that Paul, as you might know from, from our series in Acts, has experienced a great deal of pushback and persecution and death threats because he's been preaching the gospel to the Jewish people and he's been encouraging them to accept Gentiles into the fellowship of God. 
This has been a great trial and a struggle for Paul. And these men have been a comfort to him. We don't really know anything about Aristarchus. We don't know anything about Jesus who is called Justice. They are mentioned here, but ultimately they are ordinary, mundane, normal people who lived lives that that history has mostly forgotten. And yet, they worked with Paul and they were a comfort to him. They were a comfort to him. And because of that, their names are included in a book that has been written, that has been read by more people than, than they could ever imagine. Just as in prayer, there is a great value in simplicity. There is a great value in simplicity in our own lives of knowing who we are and what and who we are, where we are, and the time that we live in. Knowing that we as well will probably not be remembered. And that if our names get mentioned in, in a book that someone that goes on to be a bestseller will probably be a footnote at best. And yet, and yet, the simple, faithful act of being a friend to this minister of the gospel was a comfort to him and has provided fruit in the kingdom that cannot be measured or conceived. We live in times that are exceptional and challenging uh, in our lives, and yet, history tells us that there have been times, more exceptional times in the past, and we can expect there will be more exceptional times to come. We lack perspective, and that can be discouraging. But the perspective I gain from reading this and to thinking about the simple lives, the unknown lives of these men, is that God is faithful and able to do more than we can ask or imagine when we are faithful to him and when we love one another. That is what these people did. They loved Paul. They worked with him. What they did, how they did it, we do not know. But I, I it, you know, they are not, remember, they didn't, they didn't write, they weren't, you know, his equals in writing letters or things like that. They were just faithful, simple. And they were a great comfort to him. Being a comfort to your brother or your sister in Christ can can be the simple act that yields unimaginable fruit in God's kingdom. But it can also just be a faithful and good, loving way to live and to act. We do not know what our actions will accomplish, but we know, we can know and be assured that they are right and that they are good when we follow the kind of advice that we've been given in this letter. Paul goes on to talk about others. There's Nympha and the church that she hosts in her house. Right? This simple act of hosting people in your home for fellowship and worship is 
exceptional and incredible. And what it can accomplish is beyond your imagining. All of these things are what makes Paul's ministry possible. They're what, they're what fuel him, give him joy and thankfulness. Paul, Paul has, of course, the promise of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, but he has partners. Men and women that work with him and that love him. Churches that he loves and that he is imprisoned for. He sacrifices his time, his energy, and his life for them. And that is how he calls us to live for one another. The, the book of Colossians is all about that, how God has brought these people together, how they can grow, and how that growth happens in community with one another. When Paul, again, that, that prayer that I've referenced in Colossians chapter 1, all of, all of the yous in there, all of, all, of the, all of the objects are plural. He's not praying for, for, for you as an individual to do this, but for you as a church, Colossians, to do this together. Because doing ministry together has, is the only way that Paul has been able to accomplish what he has and is the reason that Paul can say that he is thankful in the midst of being imprisoned and enchained. So some, some, a few different ideas here. There's the steadfastness in prayer, the need to be gracious and walk in wisdom towards outsiders, and the need to recognize the value of a simple life, because that is the one that all of us have and are called to. Not knowing what God will do because of our faithfulness, but knowing and hoping that he can do more than we ask or imagine. That is the hope that we have. That is the hope that we share with one another. That is what Paul wants us to reflect on and be transformed by this morning. So I encourage you this week to pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your brothers and your sisters. Pray for Jamie and I and any other pastor or minister, evangelist or missionary that you know or even those that you don't know, but that whose ministry you are aware of. Pray that we would all have a foundation of prayer and knowledge of God's goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Pray that we would grow in maturity because of that, that we would all be able, whether in preaching or in conversation with outsiders, make the mystery of the gospel of Jesus clear and plain. Pray, pray simply, pray for each other and for me. God, we are a gift to each other. We are a gift ultimately to you. You are preparing us as a church both our church, our community here in Dover, and Christians around the globe, Christians who have lived in years past and those who will live after us. You are preparing us together to offer as a, like a bride to your son Jesus. Lord, you are making us holy. You are growing us in maturity. You are uniting us with one another and with yourself.
Lord, this is our great hope, the hope that sustained Paul, the hope that he shared with the Colossians and with the many who labored with him. Lord, help us to believe this, to share it with one another and with all of those that we meet, that everything we do and say would be in the name of your son, Jesus. Help us to pray, to pray with simplicity, with assurance that you know what we need and that you hear us the way a father hears a child. Lord, give us this peace and bless us as we go about our day, as we continue to worship. We love you, Lord. We love one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you... uh